This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Stuart Dybeck, author of two collections of poetry and five short story collections. His latest are called Paper Lantern Love Stories and Ecstatic Cahoots 50 Short Stories. Dybeck's fiction, poetry, and nonfiction have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, and many other magazines. We began our interview talking about how he came to writing fiction. When he was 16, he got his first job at a famous jazz record store in Chicago and said there was something about music that brought him to writing. I think all the arts and one's creative relationship with them, whether it's as a reader, a viewer, or a maker, are connected, and that even though we separate them in different categories, they're on some kind of a continuum inside of us. And so certainly for me, music has always allowed me to think in a different way than, for lack of a better word, I'll call academic thinking. And I began by listening to music to make the kinds of connections you can only make when your mind is mind is linked to your emotions. So let's call it emotional thinking. You learn emotional thinking through music, through looking at art, through reading. And it's a really a different kind of a kind of thinking than, say, syllogistic thinking or Aristotelian thinking. That is where you divide things into categories and try to figure out what makes them the same or different. Or the syllogistic thinking, if A equals B and B equals C, A must equal C, which is, you know, really the kind of thinking that can be measured on IQ tests. The thinking in, in something like music or in writing is, is a kind of a thinking that has to do with an empathetic response, metaphorical thinking, or, or, a, or a bringing together of things in an instinctive way that, that is not necessarily logical. I've read that a lot of your short stories started as poems, but then when the narrative or characters get too big, you expand the lines in front of you. Will you follow characters wherever they go? I do. And I'm sure that over the course of your career, it has led you to places you had no idea you were going. I'm kind of after that. I teach writing, so it's very clear to me how important it is, especially for a young writer, and I'm sure it was that way for me, to gain some kind of control over a story. And yet, almost paradoxically, the whole point of gaining enough control over a story is so that you can reach a point where you can surrender to it, rather than bossing the story around. You want the story to lead you. That's where the the fun, the fun and the addicting quality of writing really kicks in. You kind of uh, leave yourself. I, I don't want to make it sound too mystical, but there's a there's a sense of the of the self disappearing. So where does the control come for you in the revision process? If you sort of let go and follow the character wherever it goes, how do you know where to exert some control and where not to when you're revising? That's a really terrific question. I think the question itself suggests part of the answer, which is that the revision process is is a bit of a compromise. I I always write the music. It's very hard for me to do first draft, early draft, if I'm not writing the music. And that's where I really lose myself. And at some point, it becomes necessary to turn that music off because the, the music has been a crutch. And it's been forgiving. That is the story which has come out piecemeal and never lives up to the way you feel you've imagined it, is being protected from your critical consciousness by the beauty of the music. And I'm speaking only 
dating myself here, of course, but I mean, at some point I, I reach a point where uh, instinct or experience or a combination of tells me that I've got it far enough along so that now it's time for the critical self to start participating. And the, the music goes off. Uh, hopefully by that point, that that critical self is not empowered enough to undermine the entire process. Again, I'm going back to the fact that I've taught writing for years. One of one of the things that I've most seen inhibits younger writers is you can become a, a fairly good critic. Not a great critic, but a fairly good one. A lot faster than you can become a good writer. And they allow that critic to have at it earlier than they should, and it puts them on a commission. You know, part of what takes long for becoming a writer is that you're you're studying a very complicated craft. And so to go back to your question about the, the rewriting process, at that point, all the stuff that you've learned about craft becomes something that isn't just channeling the story anymore, as it does in the early draft, but it's now um, being utilized for problem solving. Um, and then the final thing is that the revision process is not just the process of fixing things, but it's a process of retelling yourself the story. And I, I think one of the things that is misunderstood about revision is that um, people envision it as a process where you've made a mistake here or something's wrong there. And in other words, that there's this list of things that have to be fixed. And really closer to the truth is that before that story is ready to be told to anybody else, you have to continue to tell it to yourself. So in telling it to yourself, you really always have at least one foot in the still in the composition process. You're, you're reimagining it. The mistakes, if that's what they ought to be called, and I'm not even so sure about that, that are being fixed are kind of getting fixed naturally in the retelling of the story. Diction is getting corrected. Sentence rhythm is getting corrected. Dialogue is getting better. Motivation is getting more solid more imaginative, you're lying better about things, lying more persuasively, more convinced, if one believes Camus' idea that fiction is the lie that tells the greater truth. In Paper Lantern, which for our listeners, if they don't know this story, basically begins in the present, and there's a group of people working on a time machine, and they leave and go out for Chinese food, and at the end of the meal, they think, oh, did we leave a Bunsen burner on? And they go back and they see that their building is on fire. And the narrator sees everything in flames and remembers back, at first we're not sure why, to a relationship he had one summer with a woman and the things they said to each other and did. It sort of then comes back to the building and these photos that he had taken of her on a night that they had witnessed a fire are now burning, so his last memory of her is going up in flames. This started as a poem. Tell me a little bit about the impetus for this story and how you sort of layered the time and the memory to create what you did. Let me refer to two other stories that also started out as poems. It seems that almost every book I've done has at least one story like that that just accidentally turned into a story. First one is Pet Milk, which occurs in a book called The Coast of Chicago. And in that story, I tried for, I don't know how long, to write a still life in poetry. I, I love still lifes, um, you know, bowl of fruit, whatever, on a table. And the still life I was trying to write was a, a kind of a mug of instant coffee with a, 
way that turned into a story was at some point I was dissatisfied with the way that still life was coming out, and I asked myself, why in the world are you trying to write a still life about those objects? And the answer was that they were on the table of my Polish grandmother. And as soon as I thought about that, I had a flashback in time to the Polish grandmother. In Proust, it would be called the Madeline moment, where he bites into the Madeline and remembers his childhood. The other story was also, I was trying to write a poem. I had read a poem by one of my favorite Israeli poets, one of my favorite poets, period, an Israeli poet named Yehuda Amakai called We Did It. And it was a poem about, quote, doing it. And I tried to write a poem about all the times that you would have liked to but didn't succeed called We Didn't. And at some point, the same thing happened. A character came into it, a girl, and it took off into a, the poem turned into a story. In Paper Lantern, it was a prose poem. And the prose poem was merely those guys working on the time machine going out for a Chinese meal. And in one of the later drafts, suddenly there's a Bunsen burner and, and sparks in the air that they first think are snow. In fact, sparks mixed with a snowfall. And the exact same thing happens. There's a, there's a recollection. The recollection is suddenly they see the building burning and the narrator remembers as a kid watching fires in his old neighborhood, fires that sometimes a group of kids set who would actually call themselves the Matchheads. In each story, what, what, what's happened with the poem part, the lyrical part, is that before there's even any story, an image is established. The image is the time machine and the laboratory and paper lantern and the paper lantern itself and the Chinese restaurant or the can of pet milk. And then almost as if it's grafted to that, although graft is not a correct verb there because the it rather than being grafted to it, it's flowing out of the flowing out of the image is a memory, which is a way of exploring the image. And it means for the for the rest of the story that there is now this combination between narration and image. You know, in other words, the story itself is coming out of the metaphor. And because of that, you then have this relationship between what that image, what that metaphor, how that metaphor, how that image keeps changing as, as the narrative develops. And so that what you're kind of calling the layers and the intricacy of the story is, is actually kind of coming out of that. In Paper Lantern, the form that it takes is the initial image of the time machine, which carries people back in the time, gets actually demonstrated by the recollection of this failed romance um, the narrator in the story has with the woman. But behind that failed romance is also that image of fire. Long before he sees her photographs burning, that image of fire and what we think of as the way fire is often thought of as being an image for passion is being explored and it's part of that 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 narration you know beyond that i can't really i i never sat there and planned it out there was no blueprint but i could feel myself safely riding that metaphorical rail i knew on some instinctive level that fire time travel and the romance of that story were all now joined together all i had to do is tell the story at this point and all that metaphorical stuff would just ride right along with it. 
I didn't have to, I didn't have to plan it out in a way. It was a, it, it, it had, a, it, it had beat me to it. So it seems like memory is something that does fascinate you. Oh, it does indeed. Um, and the, the relationship it has to dream interests me. The relationship it, the, the relationship it has to narrative interests me. In other words, I mean, when we remember, we're, we're telling stories, and what stories, stories themselves are mnemonic. That the reason that we tell stories, that we're wired to tell stories, that at one point what, what a writer did was he told the stories of the tribe so that the tribe could remember who they are. So, you know, if you sit down and read the Iliad, presumably that Homer, whoever he was at one time, was telling the story in this narrative way because we remember narratives. And if you think about your memory, uh, one of the reasons that it's thought that children don't remember stuff past the age of three, although they're finding out now that certain kids can do it, is that children can't make up stories. They don't have enough language to make up stories before that age. And if you can't make up a story, it's very, very difficult to, to remember history. History is a kind of remembering. So that... That that relationship between memory and narrative is you can't it's indivisible. As a storyteller, the way people create stories out of their memories fascinates me. One of the first times I realized how aware I was becoming of it was my and I think almost anybody in a family has the same uh, experiences that if you have a sibling. Frequently, the sibling's recollection of something that happened in the family is very different from your own. Some writers who are working in memoir bend over backwards to research their stories, trying to get the facts right, so that memory is somehow being combined almost with a journalistic instinct. You know, in fiction, you, you can do a ton of research. Sometimes one of the things that fiction does is it, it goes down the road not taken. How does writing in your daily life merge together? And what I mean by that is how much of what you write is a composite of maybe your own memories and then things you might just see on the street the day that you're writing? Yeah, it's all mixed up. I do feel that, and this does cross the line a little bit into the, but I'll cross it anyway, which is that when you're really into a story, it seems that some things often happen in your daily life that suddenly fit the story. And, and of course, you know, really, it isn't a mystical thing that something is happening. It's that your your attention is so focused on the story that you're reading into life itself and, and pulling things out of there. But there there is that aspect. It's almost always a, a good omen when that happens. It means that you're, you're deep in the story and the, the story has a good chance of succeeding. But the other stuff about memory and so on and so forth, I, you know, like every other writer, I, I keep a notebook. I kiddingly call it my great thoughts notebook. And it's just all full of snippets and lines of dialogue. And, and I've got an office with tons of envelopes with stories that didn't work or half-finished stories or novels that got to page 220 and never went any farther. And you never know when... Uh, something that you're working on in the present is going to hook up with something in the past, which is one of the reasons why I'm not a burner. And I, I mean, there's all these stories that readers like to read about writers who decided that they need to burn all their work <laughs> and start afresh. I, I always question 
my students not to get carried away with romantic gestures like that because you're going to need those. Uh, often, sometimes years later, something that you don't even remember you wrote, you find in an envelope, and suddenly there's a connection with what, with, with what you're working on it in the present. But, uh, you know, aside from, from getting used to, after all these years of writing, the different coincidences that occur, I, I don't really have any explanation for how all that happens. I, I do re- rely heavily on memory, but I don't even consider myself an autobiographical writer. M- memory is so transformed, so changed, so uh, enjoined with stories I've heard, with things I've just, God knows how, made up, that, um, it you know, if I really wanted to write out of memory, I'd be writing memoirs, or I'd be writing nonfiction. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Influenced me and continues to influence me. It's kind of a a safe influence because in some ways he's so much over my head that I don't have to worry about copying him. But uh, that that would be Ilo Calvino. He would have won the Nobel Prize had he not uh, suffered a massive heart attack in his 50s, but he this guy could really write like an angel, and there's uh, many of his books I love, but there's one book in particular, so um, it's called Invisible Cities, and I'm a I'm an urban writer. I write a lot about cities, Chicago being the city I'm most familiar with. So I'm going to read um, the second he 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 the, the the basic book in a in a in a nutshell is this that it, and it's a fantastical book is that Marco Polo is meeting in a garden with Kublai Khan. And Kublai Khan is the ruler of this gigantic empire. But he never goes out of his garden, and he doesn't know what's going on. So Marco Polo, in a series of little prose poems, describes all the different cities in Kublai Khan's empire. The cities are imaginary cities, and each one has a woman's name. And I'm going to read the second one from the book, which is titled Cities and Memory, which, of course, goes right to our most of our conversation. When a man rides a long time through wild regions, he feels the desire for a city. Finally, he comes to Isadora, a city where the buildings have spiral staircases encrusted with spiral seashells, where perfect telescopes and violins are made, where the foreigner hesitating between two women always encounters a third, where cockfights degenerate into bloody brawls among the betters. He was thinking of all these things when he desired a city. Isadora, therefore, is the city of his dreams, with one difference. The dreams of city contained him as a young man. He arrives at Isadora in his old age. In the square, there is a wall where the old men sit and watch the young go by. He is seated in a row with them desires are already memories. Do you want to talk a little bit more about it? What, what's going on there is memory is looking backwards and desire looks forward. It, it seems like he places a human being somewhere where their present is always being torn in two directions, which I believe is desire looking forward, which is erotic, and memory looking backwards. You know, the story that we've been talking about, Paper Lantern, and really that whole book, which is calling itself Love Stories, is really about the erotic, and by the erotic, I don't mean sex. I don't mean 
graphic sex or anything of the like. I mean that life force, the force that drives us, that makes us look for a partner, that makes that makes us feel most alive. That was kind of the book I wanted to write about, and 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 a and a force that can get can take a lot of different shapes, and that can excuse the cliche, but get get terribly bent out of shape, perverted, turning into different sh- kinds of disappointments, and, and so on and so forth, as well as being something that makes life healthy, that makes us act like, like the plants and the bees and the things of Earth. I, as soon as I read that one little section of uh, Invisible Cities, I, I could feel all those resonances. As, and in fact, the, 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 the book does head off in that direction. How about um, if you can read a short passage from something you wrote? It could be something that you found hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or something you feel you succeeded at. The thing I would turn to, it would be Paper Lantern because for at least two years, it wasn't a story. It was a prose poem. And there wasn't anything about (laughs) a trip to Chicago on the part of two people. There weren't two people uh, who were lovers in the story. And it was very important for me when I thought of it as a as a poem and not a story to refine the language. So I thought maybe I'd just read the opening paragraph of it, if that's all right. We were working late on the time machine in the little makeshift lab upstairs. The moon was stuck like the whirl of a frozen fingerprint to the skylight. In the back alley, the breaths left behind by yowling toms converged into a fog Linking out along the streets. Try as we might, our measurements were repeatedly off. In one direction, we reached the border at which clairvoyants stand gazing into the future. And in the other, we'd gone backwards to the zone where the present turns ghostly with memory and yet resists quite becoming the past. We'd been advancing and retreating by smaller and smaller degrees until it had come to seem as if we were measuring immeasurable. Of course, what we really needed was some new vocabulary of measurement. It was time for a break. Was that language in the poem? Yeah, and I I mean, for the, just the sake of taking it a little further, what had become clear to me at that point, again, long before the story was the story, was that one of the things that attracted me about prose poems, or the short, short, or now today uh, in an allied form gets called flash fiction, was that when you're working in that little short form and the reader doesn't look at three or four hundred pages following, what the readers, for some readers anyway, I think it makes the reader pay more, a little bit more attention to the language. And for me as a writer, one of the things it does is it makes me very, very conscious of prose rhythm, which is hard to talk about because we don't have iambic pentameters and scansion and all the stuff that makes it possible to talk about poetic rhythm with. And that actually ruins poetry for a lot of kids when they get into a classroom and, 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 they're, and they're asked to do all that, that stuff. But prose has beautiful rhythms to it, whether it's the rhythms of somebody talking in an accent that you're trying to catch when you're trying to catch a character's voice or whatever. We, we, we go to theory to listen to. So I had said somewhere in an interview that those little, that a prose poem is a laboratory, for me is a laboratory of prose rhythm. And that whole notion of these guys working in the laboratory, when I was still writing it as a prose poem, was 
came out of that notion that the prose poem is a laboratory for prose rhythm. But rather than calling it that, I changed it to they were working in the laboratory on a time machine. Why? Don't ask me why. I don't know. It just came to me, and I, I wrote it that way. But there, there was that there was that kind of an overlap at that point, and then it it, it gradually disappeared, and the, the more uh, complicated the imagery became, and the more the story asserted itself, um, the, the 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 more the whole thing turned into a narrative. Where do you write? I really write within a piece of music, at least early on. It, it doesn't matter where I'm situated. I've got earphones on or speakers playing. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I'm a gym rat, and I feel that one of the things that the, that's deceptive about writing is that the medium of writing is the only medium in the arts that's an abstraction. And you sit at a desk, you're not painting, you're not playing an instrument, you're not welding, chiseling. All, all the other arts have kind of got this active uh, filming with a camera, running around a stage with sword fighting and or doing a car chase. All the other arts have got because they're they're dealing with the physical world that comes through the senses. Have got ac- action about them. And, you know, if you see a film on Jackson Pollock, he's splattering paint all over the place. And here the writer is just sitting there like he's some kind of a Talmudic scholar. And so for me I I kind of have to have a physical expression of it. And since you can't have a physical expression of it when you're doing it, once I get up from that desk, I want to lift weights, swim, play a sport, just just do something physical. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Oh, over the years, it's <laughs> kind of tapered down to one poor victim, which is a tremendously gifted nonfiction writer who is one of my very oldest friends. And we've reached the point where we're so brutally honest with each other, we exchange work frequently. How have you dealt with rejection? For me, being able to do this, coming kind of from a, a working class background, it always seems like at least I'm not on a line in a factory. So the rejection never is always in that kind of a perspective, a context of, well, it could be a lot worse. It just seems like part of the process. You, sh- you shrug it off and you, you keep going. That said, as I as I've mentioned at least twice before already here, I've taught for a long time now. And I'm not trying to pretend that for people wired in a different way, it's it's not an enormous it it's not an enormous problem to, to overcome. Some people are very wounded by it. And in that in that case then you've got to devise strategies to deal with it. I don't really have any strategies to deal with it because I just say, Oh, that hurts and go back to writing. And what is your favorite word? Oh, I've got so many of them, but for the sake of just playing along, I'll say lilacs. I love the way it it feels in the mouth, but it's a word I can smell. It has a scent. Not I mean, not every not every uh, flower name has a scent for me, but that that particular one does. Maybe it's partly being a Midwestern. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Stuart Dybeck, author of Paper Lantern Love Stories and Ecstatic Cahoots, 50 Short Stories. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. 
The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.